Would you open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter, really 10, 11, and 12? So pick one. We're going to be in all three of them. Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. You're going to need your Bible here this morning because we're going to be flipping through the scriptures and make sure you have that out. Maybe a pen and some paper to take some notes. I want you to imagine a family from California here. Maybe they travel across the, to the East Coast and visit some grandparents and visit some family out there. And they're having a good time and they decide that their son, maybe let's say he's 10, 11, 12 years old, He's going to stay out there with the grandparents. So the parents all come back. Family all comes back. So the young you know, 12-year-old boy is with his grandma and grandpa. And he's out there for a couple weeks. And then he's going to fly back. And he's got to do the whole unaccompanied minor thing. You ever known a child that's done that? You ever had a child that's done that? I have not done it with any of my kids. I don't know if I would. But anyways, some people are more bold in that area. And so I want you to imagine this grandfather taking his grandson to the airport and dropping him off. Hopefully, I think he probably can take him to the terminal. And this young boy getting on this plane all by himself. Can you imagine being a child and doing that? And just maybe the fears, I mean, let alone get on an airplane, but then traveling across the United States by yourself. And I can imagine that situation, maybe a father would write a, a letter to his son giving him instructions, you know, when you're on the plane, do this, don't do this, you know, when you get off the plane, I'll be here and all that. And let's imagine that that happens and the father signs the bottom of the letter, I love you, son, see you soon. The son's on this plane and he's flying across the United States, you know, he's looking out the window and he sees the clouds, he sees the bottom, you know, it's kind of a scary situation, he's all by himself. And I can imagine that probably a lot of different scenarios could go through this boy's mind about what could go wrong. Maybe his father's not going to show up. Maybe he won't know where, the, where to go. Maybe the plane won't make it. But then this boy looks back at his letter, and he sees in there the instructions from his father, and really the promise that, yes, his father will be there. He signed it himself, and he can trust his father's word. I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes like that little boy in that airplane <laughs> And I'm looking out the kind of the window of life and thinking about life. And I'm thinking, there's a lot of uncertainty in this world. I look at our country and our world. And I think of all the scenarios that could go wrong, that might go wrong, that probably will go wrong, that are going wrong. I can sometimes get very anxious about the problems in our country and our world. I consider the, the tyranny of governments, the deception of media, the abusers of power, the wickedness of our society, the moral uh, degeneration of our culture. And my heart can cry out, I'm sure yours as well, go, what's going on? Why is this all happening, Lord? But like that, that little boy in that plane, I get to come back to the book of Daniel each week. And I look at my father's word and I go, oh, wow, wait a second. God is sovereign. He's in control. And what seems to be chaos on the outside is actually God behind the scenes directing history. We look in Daniel, we see that, that there's this war, spiritual war taking place on the earth but also in the heavenlies. And so when we consider all these attacks in our world and all the problems around us, we remember that it's not just a physical war, it's not just a, a social war, it's not just a political war, that Satan is assaulting our society. His evil forces are blinding those in our society to God's goodness. His wicked warriors are influencing governors, presidents, our state department, schemes. His schemes are active in schools and homes and the hearts of people. So we know this is this spiritual war taking place. Yet history is not Satan's story. It's God's story. And God superintends over human history and angelic history to fulfill his will for his glory and for our good. And so as I get worked up and concerned about this world, 
I've had the privilege this whole summer and last spring to go to Daniel and go, wait a second, Lord, here's what you say is actually taking place. You're the one who's in charge. Daniel 10 through 12 demonstrates to us that there is no uncertainty with God. And God has given us his word so we can know what's true. And God's word is certain and true. In fact, I think chapter 10, 11, and 12 was written so that Daniel and the Jewish people and then his church eventually would know the certainty of God's word. That God's word is certain and true. True. On that plane, you think about that little boy. How does he know his father will be there? What kind of certainty does he have? Well, what does he look to? He looks to what his father wrote down. He looks to the signature on the bottom of that letter. How do we know? Like, how do we know what we believe is true? Because God's word is certain. In fact, just let me fly over this and show this to you again. Look in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. Daniel 10.1, in the middle of the verse, he says that the word was true. Look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 21. He says God's word is described as the book of truth. Look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. Daniel 11.2, he promises that God is showing you the truth. And then we'll look at this today in chapter 12. Twice God says his word is sealed up. And we talked about this last week. Sealed is, is like a, a king who seals something with his ring or maybe he signs it. It's, it's the idea that this is certain. This is true. This will take place. And so it's like at the end of Daniel, God signs the end of it. He seals it and he says, know for certain, Daniel, that this word is true. There's a lot of uncertainty in our world, but we can know this is certain. God's word is true. So we looked at three. We looked at three topics that demonstrate the certainty of God's word. First, I guess we only got through the first one last week and kind of went into number two. So we're going to really focus on number two and number three here this morning. First, we learned last week that God's word is certain and true in regard to the past, the present, and the future. That's what we saw in chapter number 11. Remember in chapter 10, it starts off with Daniel praying by a river. Then what I believe, who I believe it is that appears to him is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And he told him what was going to happen to Israel in the end of days. In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 14, just to remind ourselves of this. He says, I came to make you, Daniel, understand what is to happen to your people, that's Israel, in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So who is this a vision about? It's about Israel. And These three chapters here give us the certainty of God's word. And in chapter 11, verses 2 to 35, was a detailed prophecy of what was going to happen over the next 375 years. I don't know how many of you went home and studied that. Did anyone do that? Look in your study Bible or find a commentary. In fact, I had this this idea last week. We have a library back there. Maybe you should go check out a book and you can check out that prophecy, those prophecies. And we said there was 135 specific prophecies in those 34 verses that were fulfilled in history. So over the next 375 years, God said, here's what's going to happen in detail to dynasties like the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and all these details, and all of that took place. Why would God fill 34 verses with all this information. Does he want us to sit in school and take a test on this? No, he wants us to know that God's word is certain. So he sets all that up so that as we read the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12, we'll say, you know what? If God said that would happen and it took place in this detail, I believe this is what's going to happen in the future. And so second topic we're going to cover here today is that God's word is certain in regard to his promises. In verse 35, we see really a transition. And from verse 34 to the verse 36, 
we jump from 160 BC in verse 34 to over 2,100 years later in verse 36. And I say over because that's beyond us. Because 36, verse 36 and all beyond that is future to us. So verse 35 through the end of Daniel, we're going to see that God has promised to preserve his people Israel until the end of time, till the end of the time. God promised that he is not done with Israel. He still has promises to fulfill for them. God had scattered Israel and he promised that through that scattering that he would purify them, he would refine them with the desire that they turn in repentance and faith to him. In fact, look at verse 35 and we can see that. Like like I said, verse 35 is this transition verse, a transition transition us into the future. So verse 35, he says, and some of the wise, and there he's speaking of believing Jews, some of the wise shall stumble, that is that they shall suffer. I like how the New Living Translation kind of does a dynamic equivalent of this. Not necessarily a great translation I recommend, but in this one it says, and some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. And that's, that's the idea. They're going to be persecuted Why? Why would God allow that to happen to his people? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. So the promise here is that God would not give up on his people. He will keep refining them with suffering until when? He says, until the time of the end, which is still future for us. So God is still doing this refining process with his people. God refines us because God knows what is best for us. He refines his people, Israel. He refines his church. He refines us because God knows what is best for us. Job 23.10, Job says this as a testimony. He, that is God Almighty, and Dana's going to talk about that tonight, ladies, so you'll see that. God Almighty knows the way that I take. So in other words, God knows each individual one of our lives. He knows who we are. He knows what is needed in our life so that we'll turn to him in faith. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, in other words, when he's put me under the fire, I shall come out as gold. Now, if you value gold, you value the refiner's fire, don't you? If you value the dross, then you don't value the fire. God here is saying that he is purifying his people. Why? Because God values the gold. Not the gold of this world, right? You don't get that. He values what, what we consider, what he considers valuable. And what is that? A close, pure relationship with the Lord. And if we value that, we'll value the fire. Not because we want to paint. We want pain. We don't want pain. Okay, so don't get me wrong there. It's not that we want pain. It's that we want more of the Lord. And we want the dross of sin and self to be burned away. So for God to refine us is to give us what is best for us. And we don't like to think that way, right? But for God to refine us is to give us what is best for us. And what is that? It's more of himself. So here he's refining Israel. Why is he doing this? Well, chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, and we'll see this a little bit later. Romans chapter 11 tells us, and that is that God wants to see his people, Israel, come to faith in Christ. And that will happen. A third of Israel during this time of refining will turn to faith in Christ right before the second coming of Christ. So the promise is, the promise, I should say, of verse 35 is based upon really this promise to Israel found throughout the Old Testament. And that is that God has a future for his people, Israel. So before Christ's first coming... God worked through his chosen people, Israel. Today, God is at work through his church, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And then one day, God will turn his attention back to national Israel, and he will fulfill his promises that he made to them. Now, as you're listening to this, if you know anything about eschatology, about end times, then you'll understand that I'm describing a premillennial view of the end times. 
So I'm a premillennialist. Some of you don't know what that means. It doesn't really matter. But the reason I, I see the text like this is because I approach the scripture in a normal, literal approach to interpretation. And really one of the main differences between how we as a church interpret the scripture regarding the end times and how other people do interpret the scripture according to the end times is that we believe that God has a future for Israel. We believe God has a future for Israel. That's why the disciples asked Jesus. Remember, Jesus was about to ascend to heaven. He had died and been resurrected, and then he was about to ascend to heaven. And they asked him a very important question. Lord, in Acts 1.6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, oh, it's already been restored to Israel. It's now the church. No, he says, actually, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, that will happen. I'm not telling you the time right now. It's going to happen. We could go through the New Testament and look at this more in other places. But in the Old Testament, God promised he was going to scatter his people. And then he promised to bring them back to the land of Israel. And they would have absolute peace. Now, has that happened? No, it hasn't. That's not been fulfilled. He promised the Messiah would rule over them in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. They would obey his laws And then from there, the Messiah would judge other nations. Has that happened yet? No, that has not happened yet. So here are promises, and I could list some others, but here are promises that God has said will happen. There you go. There's my, we'll come back to that. Here's some of the verses right here. I mean, I could list a lot more than this, but for those who really like to look this stuff up, you can look this up. And these aren't just some obscure verses in the Old Testament. A lot of the major prophets and minor prophets Give these promises to Israel. And some people take these kind of promises to Israel and spiritualize them for the church and say, oh, this is, this is talking about the church. And here's kind of the main problem I have with that. If you don't expect those promises to Israel to be literally fulfilled, why should we expect any other promise of God to be literally fulfilled? I mean, think about, think about Daniel chapter 11. I mean, here's Daniel 11, verse 2 through verse 35, verse 34. All of those were literally fulfilled, right? Here's prophecy, literally fulfilled. And then we go to the rest of it and go, oh, but the other things are just, you know, spiritual. It doesn't really, we can't really trust those things are actually going to take place that way. But actually, if we believe God says something, then he, we can have certainty that it's going to happen. And so, that's why I take that perspective on it. Verse 35 in verse 35, God assured his people that they, were, they would suffer, but God has a purpose. He puts them through the fire so they'll turn to him for salvation. And then verse 36 through verse 45, the Lord described the end of days and how the Antichrist would persecute Israel. Verse 34, if you remember last week, we ended with this guy named Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, a real guy in history, church history, and in history, not church history, but in history, he persecuted the Jewish people in the second century BC. Then verse 35 here transitions, and now we go into verse 36. We're going to look at the future Antichrist. And I gave this little um, picture last week. Hope that can help you think about it. And I said last week, when we think of prophecy in the Old Testament, we could think of it like these hills. These are the beautiful hills behind our church. And in a couple of weeks, once all this rain um, gets in the ground, it's going to be even more beautiful, it'll be green. But when they, when they looked forward in the Old Testament to Christ, they heard the prophecies of Christ, the prophecies of the future, and they consider it really as one event. But I said we should really think of prophecy as, as prophetic hills, if you want to say it that way. And, and the first prophetic hill is the coming of Christ. And so from our perspective, we are looking back to that. And in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is this gap of what? Of church history. I mean, we're living in the gap. And I said, if you actually were to hike that hill up there, you would actually could look down and see there's a valley on the other side of that hill, right where that first coming of Christ, the arrow, right where the arrow is, you can hike up there. You can see there's a valley on the other side. And it's not evident to us on this side of it, right? So the Old Testament saints, it wasn't evident to them. But as we've climbed and we've up, we're up and now we're down in the valley, we can look back and see that those prophecies have been fulfilled, and we look forward to the future and say there's some prophecies that are still to come. And so let's look at verse 36. We're going to look at a description of the Antichrist here and how he causes Israel to suffer. 
Look at verse 36. And the king, so this is the future Antichrist, shall do as he wills. Then he goes on to describe the Antichrist. Now, this is when we get kind of dangerous, right? Because everyone goes, oh, who's the Antichrist? You know, it's always the next president, right? <laughs> I don't think it is now. I don't think anyone's saying that now. But, but people are always saying, who's the guy? I, I typed into Google, like, who's the Antichrist? I mean, it's got a lot of people, like, out there. So there's some crazy ideas. So the question is, who is the Antichrist? And you know what the answer is? I don't know. And I don't think you'll actually know until he arrives on the scene of history. So I don't think it's helpful for us to speculate. I don't think it's helpful to speculate. So let's keep going in verse 36 here. He shall exalt himself. So this describes him. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, until God actually causes to be accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. What God says will happen. He shall Pay no attention to the God of his fathers. Let me just pause right there to think about this description of him. So here, this text is saying that he is not going to worship the God of his fathers. He's not going to follow the God of his fathers. Now, some people look at this right here and they say, oh, well, it was just talking about this guy in history, Antiochus IV, so this must be him as well. There's a couple of descriptions of the Antichrist here in this chapter that actually don't fit Antiochus IV. This is one of the major ones right here. There's a couple other Ones we could point out. I don't want to go to a lecture and point all those out. But verse 37, he says, he will pay no attention to the God of his fathers. Well, that's the exact opposite for Antiochus IV. He actually persecuted the Jewish people, forcing them to worship the Greek gods. He actually tried to Hellenize them, which means he tried to, to get them to follow and worship the gods of Greek Greece. In fact, actually, he set up Zeus in the temple and commanded them to worship Zeus. So... This definitely does not describe Antiochus IV. There's a couple other things that we could probably point out as well. Namely, that it's speaking of the end of times. So that's obviously not 2,100 years ago. So anyways, we keep going here just to notice the description of this. So if this is a person who does not pay attention to the God of his fathers, what does that mean? Some people look at this and say, well, that means he's probably an atheist. That could be the case. It's hard to really know until it actually happens. Or, he says, or to the one beloved by women. Or literally, you could probably better translate this, he will not desire women. So, what does that mean? Well, some believe it means that he hates women because the Messiah was born through a woman. Some people think it means that he, had, he has same-sex attraction or that he's celibate. Again, we don't know exactly what it is, but there's um, some descriptions of him there. He shall pay, as he says, goes on to say in verse 37, he shall pay... Uh, no attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So he makes himself a God. He is his own religion. Verse 38, he shall honor the gods of fortresses instead of these. So he loves military might. His God is himself in his powerful military. It goes on to say, a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver. So he's going to pour his money into himself, really, into his military might with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. And notice verse 40, at the time of the end, so he puts this in here to remind us, this is actually future. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. With chariots and horsemen and with many ships, he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. What's the glorious land? It's Israel. It's not California. For those who got mixed up with that, it's Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries in the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver. He's going to be super wealthy. He's going to be very powerful. And all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But the news, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. 
And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And notice this key verse in verse 45. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and the glorious holy mountain. So that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be his capital. He shall come to his end with none to help him. And his end will come with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we transition into chapter 12. Of course, there weren't chapter divisions when Daniel received this vision. So we go to chapter 12, and the Lord reveals that behind all of this is Satan and his powerful satanic influence upon this man. And we can see in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that Michael the archangel actually wars against Satan to protect Israel. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people. So here's Michael, the archangel. We've seen him a couple of times in these three chapters. So here he is again, and he is described as one who has charge of your people. Who are your people? Well, that's Israel. I mean, Daniel is Jewish, right? And notice verse 1 refers back to the previous verses, verses 36 through 45. He says, at that time. Well, at what time? Well, during the time of the Antichrist that he just described. And when will that be? Well, during a time of tribulation that is the worst that Israel has ever experienced. And that's what he goes on to say. Now, think about that. Think about a tribulation that's the worst that Israel has ever experienced. I mean, they literally have had genocides by the millions. This is going to be worse than that. And that's what he promises there in verse number two. He says, and there shall be a time of Trouble such as never has been, there was a nation till that time. Moses was the one who founded the nation of Israel. And so since that time till that future time, this will be the worst tribulation they have ever undergone. And he says, and there will be a time of trouble. Now here's a question. What is the time of trouble? Well, it's this time of tribulation before Christ's second coming. This will be the most intense tribulation Israel has ever experienced, and it's going to last three and a half years. And you say, Pastor Ben, how did you know that? Well, he tells us in Daniel. He actually tells us twice in Daniel, confirms it twice by the word of the Lord. In fact, look at verse 4. We're just going to kind of walk through these verses, and then I'm going to take a break here and uh, come up for air. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So this is certain. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So he's describing what will happen, what, will look, what it will look like up until the time of the end. You know, it's an interesting, he says there, knowledge shall increase. And that's definitely taken place in our world, hasn't it? In fact, even think about the last 200 years, even the last 100 years. I read a statistic that said in 1917, the world literacy, literacy rate, was 23%. So there only, only 23% of the people in the world were able to read something. Today, the world literacy rate is 86%. So, I mean, here knowledge is increased. I mean, we look at the technology around us as well. And then verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood. So here's two other angels, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. So remember this, this man clothed in linen is the pre-incarnate Jesus. He's hovering over the waters, which shows his deity. Two angels are on the shore and they ask a question. They say, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? Kind of sounds like the disciples asking a question, doesn't it? Now, why do they ask this question? Well, they're messengers of God. So what they do is on behalf of God, right? They're not out there going, hmm, what are we doing out here? God, Jesus, I have a question, right? No, they're doing this on behalf of God. And so what they're doing, I believe, their question was directed by God to confirm what he's already promised, what he's already prophesied. Look at verse 7. So I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. So this is a promise. This will happen. This time of trouble 
And it would be for a time, that's one year, times, that's two years, and half a time, that's half a year, which equals what? Mathematicians out there? Three and a half years. There we go. The Lord promised, therefore, that this trouble would take place over these three and a half years. Then he goes on to say, what will take place during these years and when, sorry, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Who are the holy people? Israel, the Jewish people. And verse 7 is a description of their time of tribulation. Look at verse 8. Daniel doesn't understand, so God says, oh, I'll tell it to you again. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, so this is Daniel speaking, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So in other words, they're certain until the time of the second coming of Christ. Verse 10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. So again, he's talking about, this is the reason I'm doing it, to purify my people. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise, those who are believing the word of God shall understand. So at that time, they'll understand. And let me just stop right here and say that we're not going to understand everything here. But at that time, they will look at the scriptures and they'll say, oh, I don't know what's certain around me, but I know this is certain. What God says is true. And then look at verse 11. This is very interesting. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, so the offerings will cease in the temple, in the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. How many, how many years is that? What's well, three and a half years. So he says there's going to be this abomination, desolation, and three and a half years, and then the end will come. And then in verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Verse 12 is sort of an enigma, enigma. I don't really know what is happening during those extra days. I don't think anybody else really does. A lot of people speculate. I think probably the time they'll know, right, when it comes to those days. So just wait till then, and they can all figure that out. So... So we kind of end this kind of section right here. Again, I said, let's come up for, for air. So if you're sleeping right now, you can wake up. <laughs> and uh, if you don't know what's going on, I'm going to explain a little bit more in detail here to you and hopefully help us to all understand this. Really, one of the reasons I preached on the book of Daniel was because the prophecies of Daniel are the foundation for the prophecies of the New Testament. If you, if you don't understand the end times in Daniel, you're not going to understand the end times in the New Testament. And so as I was thinking through what to preach on next, I thought, if I'm going to go through another New Testament book, we have to have this confirmed. Like, we have to understand the end times and what Daniel says about the end times. Oh, you guys notice we got new doors out here? You like the new doors? Um, we had to get new keys for that. So when they gave us the doors and they installed the doors, they gave us a different key for each door which doesn't help us, right? So we had to rekey the door, so we had a locksmith come out. But there was a couple days where I'm going up the door with my old key, and I'm trying to put it in there, and it, you, know, you can't get inside the building. That's very, very annoying, right? And then when they rekeyed it, I'm coming inside. It's very helpful to have a key in order to get inside, right? Daniel is the key, the prophetic key to the New Testament. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Ben? Well, Jesus said, the, said so. And I think the, Re the book of Revelation says so as well. In fact, here's what I want to do. I just want to go through a couple of verses, a couple of passages, and, and show you this, and really show you how Daniel shines light upon what will happen at the end of days. In fact, let me do this. Uh, there we go. We're going to look at, in these passages, three prophetic observations. So kind of like hold on to your seat and your Bible, <laughs> and we're going to fly through here. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to read every verse. I just want to show this to you and go to the next thing. As we go through each of these passages, notice three things. First of all, that there's a gap of time. And it's going to, we're going to see it's the mystery of the church. A gap in time. There's the persecution of Israel. And then there's the second coming of Christ. And he sets up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. So look at Daniel chapter 2. Look in verse 40. Verse 40, this is the Roman Empire. Look how, notice how it crushes like iron, like iron that crushes. So it persecuted 
many people, but particularly the Jewish people, and really before and after the uh, coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And then notice between verse 40 and 41, there's this gap of time. So verse 40 deals with the Roman Empire. Verse 41 is this future 10-nation kingdom that is like the Roman Empire, but actually isn't the Roman Empire, just like it. And this 10-nation kingdom has not been on the earth yet. It's not taken place yet. And then verse 45 and uh, 44 and 45, we see the second coming of Christ. Christ comes in judgment, and then he rules over all nations and sets up his earthly kingdom. Go to chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7. Again, I'm just trying to make it through these verses. You can go back if you want to and look at some of these. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 23. Or the other option is you can go back and listen to my sermons on these. It's another option you have. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 23. Here you have in verse 23, the old Roman Empire. Again, it persecuted Israel. It persecuted other nations. It's described in verse 23 as uh, a nation that devours, that tramples down, that breaks, right? So it was a very cruel empire. And then notice between verse 23 and verse 24, there's another gap in time. In verse 24, you have, again, this 10-nation kingdom and these 10 kingdoms, I should say, these 10 nations that are this revived Roman Empire. So this is still yet future. One of these kings is the Antichrist. He's the little horn. And notice what he's doing. He's persecuting Israel for three and a half years. Look at verse 25. Daniel seven twenty-five. He, this is speaking of the Antichrist, shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints. So there he's persecuting the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time. What's that? That's one year. Half a time. Times, that's two years. And half a time, that's a half year. So how many is that again? It's three and a half years. And what happens during those three and a half years? Verse 26. I should say, what happens after those uh, three and a half years? Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment. That's God's court. His dominion, the Antichrist dominion, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Has that happened yet? No, that's still in the future. His kingdom, that's God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. And then go to chapter 9, chapter 9. Remember chapter 8, we saw the Antiochus foreshadowed the Antichrist. And then chapter 9, we saw this prophecy as well. Chapter 9, look at verse 26. Remember there was a gap between verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, the scripture says, And after the 62 weeks... You can listen to that sermon and remember that that represented 483 years from the time of Nehemiah till the time that Christ died. So after those many years, an anointed one shall be cut off, that's Jesus the Messiah, shall have nothing, and the people of the prince, that was the Romans, who it is, shall come and destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, in the sanctuary, that happened in 70 A.D., its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there, sh there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. So from 70 AD to verse 27, there's a gap of time. That's the mystery of the church. In verse 27 it says, and he, now we're speaking of the Antichrist, so he's the prince of the revived Roman Empire, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. How long is a week? It's seven years, if you remember that from our teaching then. And for half the week, what's half of seven? We're doing math this morning. It's great, isn't it? What's half of seven? Three and a half. There you go. You got it. Three and a half years. So there's, there's three and a half years. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Well, that sounds like the end of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. So in the middle of those three and a half years, he commits the abomination of desolation, desecrates the temple, persecutes God's people, and then at the very end, it says, verse 27, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And when is that? That's Christ's second coming. Go to Matthew chapter 24. We'll go to Matthew, and then we'll go to Revelation, and then we'll wrap 
everything up here. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus here is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching them about the end of days. And Jesus presents this gap from his teaching there in his time on earth to the end times. There's this gap in history. In fact, we see that. Look at Matthew 24, verse 14. Look at the very end of that verse. Jesus says, then the end will come. So there's an end that's going to come someday in the future. And then notice in verse 15, he uses Daniel as the key to understand these end times. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you want to understand what the end time is like, go to Daniel and read about him and he can tell you. He can tell you about the end of times. And Jesus went on to explain what this three and a half years of persecution is going to be like. The Antichrist will stand in the temple there. He'll commit the abomination of desolation. And then he'll persecute the people. And then notice verse 21. Daniel quotes, actually, Daniel chapter 12, verse... I'm sorry, Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So verse 21, Jesus quotes Daniel 12, 1. Jesus says in verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation... So during that time, at the time of the end, there'll be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So he expands it from the the nation of Israel to actually the world. This is the worst tribulation anyone will ever go under. Has that happened yet? No, it has not happened yet. This is still future. And then verse 22 is interesting because then he follows Like Daniel does in Daniel chapter 12, he follows speaking about those who will then be saved. And then look down at verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but notice what happens after that, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And here Jesus comes back, and he gathers his people to himself from all the ends of the earth. And then last, let's go to the book of Revelation. Let's kind of wrap up this for you and show this to you. Book of Revelation, go to chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Jesus revealed to the apostle John the future, So this revelation was given to the Apostle John in around 90 AD. So then you have the gap is from 90 AD until when this will be fulfilled in the future. At the end of time. Before Christ's second coming. Then look at Revelation 12, 7. Revelation 12, 7. Now war arose in heaven. So here now we have this spiritual war. Michael, who's that? The archangel, right? And his angels... Fighting against the dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. So here the dragon, Satan, is fighting Michael, the archangel. Michael's protecting God's people. Satan's coming against God's people. And in verse 7, we find out the dragon, Satan, and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer a place for them in heaven. So they go down to earth and they create chaos again. Even worse than it's ever happened. Verse 13, the Bible says, And when the dragon, when Satan saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman. The woman is a symbol of God's people. The woman who had given birth to the male child. That's the Messiah. But the woman was given uh, the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and half a time. Again, how long is that? That's three and a half years. Then look over in verse Uh, Chapter 13, verse 2. Chapter 13, we see the Antichrist. Here he's called the beast. He's the beast in verse, um, in chapter 13. And here we see the, in verse 2, Satan is demonically influencing him. Chapter 13, verse 2, says in the middle of the verse there, and to him, that's the Antichrist, the dragon gave his power And his throne and authority. So here you see the spiritual war taking place. And the beast makes himself to be a god. And Satan is worshipped. And so is this Antichrist. Look at verse 4. And they worship the dragon. That's Satan. 
For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, that's the Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? He's so powerful, he's so wealthy, he's so amazing in their mind, in the mind of those on earth. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. How long is 42 months? 40, it's about three and a half years. And then verse 7 says, And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So here you see the persecution of the saints during this time of tribulation. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the Antichrist. Everyone whose name, now notice this, has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of the light. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. So last notice, everyone worships the beast, except who? Those who name, whose names are written in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now let's end in Daniel chapter 12. Why is this all in the Bible? You ever thought about that? I mean, maybe you're thinking that right now. <laughs> I know I did as I thought through this and then studied this and thought, okay, Lord, this is the next part of the scripture I'm supposed to teach. Why is this in the Bible? Well, I believe those saints who live in that day they will look at these prophecies and they will see this is going to happen and they will trust God's word. And they will suffer. Satan will come against them. Literally the world will be falling apart. And only one thing will be certain in that time and that is what God has said in his word. I mean, it'll be a very, very dark, spiritually dark time. There'll be so many tricks and deceptions. The only thing they can cling on to is this right here. So I think primarily it's written for those people in the future. I do believe that. So then the question is, how does this help us? Well, we're, not, we're clearly not in as severe of a tribulation as they're going to be in, right? But we do feel it here. We do feel the tribulations, don't we? We feel a level of uncertainty, maybe in our country, maybe in your family, maybe just some personal things you're going through. Where is the one place that you can find certainty? Where is the one place you can go and know the truth? It's right here. It's God's word. When you're going through a tribulation, when you're going through a trial, what can you come to that you know is going to be certain? It's what God says. It's his word. God's word is certain in regard to his promises. Look in chapter 12, verse 1. Look at the promise he has for God's people there. We're going to look in the middle of the verse, chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time, during this time of tribulation, your people shall be delivered. They will be saved. Well, who are those people? Everyone whose name shall be, uh, be found written in the book. Now, here's a question. What book is that? The book of Revelation tells us. It's the Lamb's book of life. I love how... The ESV translate that, translates that. The Lamb's, the, the, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, who is found written in that book? Those who are saved by Jesus Christ. Those who have turned from their sin, they've repented of their sin, and they've trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're ones, the ones who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. Now here's something that we can be certain about. The Bible says if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. God's word is certain in regard to his promises. And let's look at the last one, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so God's word is certain also in regard to the hope of future resurrection. Friends, there will be a day when your body will be resurrected. Your body may die, unless Christ comes before that, your body may die. But there will be a day when whether you are a believer in Christ or you're not a believer in Christ, you'll be resurrected. And notice he doesn't say here, your soul goes to heaven or your soul goes to hell. He actually says, uses the word resurrection to eternal life or resurrection to eternal damnation or contempt and shame. 
That's a very important point, right? Because sometimes people picture hell or they picture eternity with God. They picture as someone floating around. Or maybe there's movies out there that says you're going to become an angel and get your wings, right? It's not the case. You actually are going to be a resurrected self. In other words, in a million years from now, you're going to look like you in a resurrected body. You're going to be really human. Either in heaven, or I should say on the new earth, the new resurrected earth, or in hell, separated from God forever. Everyone will be resurrected to not just a new body, but a resurrected body, either to suffer contempt forever or to enjoy God's goodness forever. And so, if you're in here without Christ, you can be certain of this. Like, what God says about the past, the present, and the future is true. We saw that. What God said, promises will happen But also, listen, there will be a resurrection. And so if you're without Christ, you will be resurrected to contempt and shame forever. He says everlasting. The the idea that there's a purgatory, that's foolishness. The Bible doesn't teach that, right? The idea that you're just going to be obliterated and and you're going to be nothingness. No, you will be a real human separated from God forever. That should be a sobering reality for all of us. And for us who are in Christ, listen, we have the hope of a resurrected life. In fact, that's what he says in verse number 13. Look down at Daniel 12, 13. He says, go your way, Daniel, till the end. And you shall rest. In other words, you're going to die and you're going to stand in your allotted place at the end of days. In other words, Daniel, I have a promise for you. You're going to be resurrected, Daniel. So what are you supposed to do, Daniel? Go your way. And then let me end with this last verse. Look at back at Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. This is probably the best verse in here. And we're saving it for last and only going to take a minute on it. Daniel 12, 3. And those who are wise, remember the wise ones are suffering, but they're trusting in the word of God. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you truly believe that there's a future resurrection for those who believe and those who don't believe, one to everlasting life, one to everlasting connection. If you truly believe that, then what will you want to do? You'll want to turn many to righteousness. You'll want to tell people that God's word is certain. And God says there's a day of judgment. And after that, a resurrection. And Jesus is our hope. So I think the question for us, church, is do you trust God's word is certain? Do you live each day truly believing what God says is is true, it's going to happen, and therefore do you turn many to righteousness?